2: Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to late 30 a.m.
0: Good morning, listeners. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. It is the 25th of June. Um, We just passed the winter solstice. So congratulations, everybody. How are you going, Priya?
3: Pretty good. Pretty cold very dark outside um how are Mm. you
0: um i've actually had a really great week um but you know there's also like a lot more cases now of coronavirus um that are like yeah being brought to light in the community so yeah i think that anxiousness is coming back a bit this week as well yeah a lot of health concerns
3: yeah and i think um as well um Having been able to get away from the city for a moment, I realized that a lot of the hot spots, um, are clustered sort of around the inner north suburbs and then some of the inner suburbs out east and in the west. And so I think it's really important that people maintain, um, some of those precautions rather than, than relaxing them so easily, especially because we do get some inconsistent messaging about, you know, how many people can be at a gathering. And I reckon, you know, keep up the good work with social distancing, sanitising, all that kind of stuff because we're in this for the long haul, hey? Mm,
0: Absolutely. And also with these greater lockdown measures, we know that we're going to also have like greater like policing and surveillance measures also put in place. So, yeah, keen to reduce all
3: of that. Yeah.
4: So in terms of what we have lined up for you today, After news headlines, we're going to hear from Priya and Kali talk about some important local news stories from the week in more depth. Then we hear a conversation between Nasser Mashni and Robert Martin from 3CR's Palestine Remembered show. Nasser and Rob speak about Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's plans to illegally annex parts of occupied West Bank, as well as the lack of dissent from international leaders about Israeli annexation of Palestinian land. After that... I speak with Thant Mintu about his recent book, The Hidden History of Burma, Race, Capitalism and the Crisis of Democracy in the 21st Century. And lastly, we'll hear an interview I did with Alison Kameke, who shares learnings from her incredible research into the systemic racial bias built into voice recognition software, which is all the more timely at the moment during the COVID-19 pandemic, when we're all using online platforms to an even greater extent than before. So it's going to be an awesome show as always. I hope you can stay tuned. And now we'll head over to news headlines with Kate Kelly.
5: Good morning. I'm Kate Kelly and here are the top stories on 3CR this Thursday. The Australian government's planned overhaul of university funding will cause another wave of anxiety and pain within parts of the sector already struggling to manage the financial impact of COVID-19, a leading researcher has warned. So more university leaders voiced their concerns about the overhaul on Tuesday, with the head of University of New South Wales warning that the quality of university education and research in Australia will be at risk if funding declined while government support for research was also constrained. The University of Tasmania argued the government was setting up a false dichotomy in trying to separate sciences from the humanities, social sciences and law, and described the funding changes as troubling and difficult for some staff. Andrew Norton, a professor of higher education policy at the ANU, said the changes were very complex for university budgets, particularly within science and engineering, which faced a decline in the combination of student and government contributions. And a little bit closer to home Victoria Police have now, ha- ha- now have helicopters with long-range cameras So the three new helicopters are fitted with high-definition cameras And infrared technology And they're able to detect number plates from a long distance The first of the three, Leonardo AW139 Helicopters Arrived at the Airwing Base in Fields this week With two more due to arrive in coming months To replace the existing helicopter Air Wing Inspector Craig Shepherd said that the new helicopters are the envy of many police forces around the world. And to Tasmania, where the Tasmanian Law Reform Institute has found that the state's 2019 gender identity reform laws do not create a significant or unintended consequence for Tasmania's justice system. So Tasmania's parliament passed the Marriage and Gender Amendments Act in April 2019 and then allowed transgender and gender diverse citizens to obtain birth certificates that accurately reflect their gender identity when it overhauled state law with the Marriage and Gender Amendments Act. So the Act made the recording of sex on a birth certificate optional by recording it at a se- essentially at a separate public register. So this change allows Tasmanians to have their gender recognised without seeking surgery and provides diverse options for gender descriptions on legal documents. But due to the unseen nature of the laws which came into effect in September last year, Tasmania's Attorney General asked the Tasmanian Law Reform Institute at the time to consider the impact of the reforms on the Tasmanian legal system and the Tasmanian Law Reform Institute researcher Dylan Richards led a wide array of public and stakeholder consultation before concluding on Tuesday that the Act mainly concerns transgender and gender diverse community members by making their lives easier when it comes to accessing services. And that's all um, today's headlines.
2: 3CR is your station in solidarity and struggle. We've been with you since 1976, and we are here to stay.
6: Throughout June, we're running a station appeal.
2: We need the financial support of our listeners to stay independent, community-owned and radical. Jump
6: online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au.
7: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio.
0: Um, But, yeah, let's talk about maybe some local news and then also some international news.
3: Yeah, so um, I guess we can start with uh, the fundraiser that was organized uh, to cover West Papuan activists um, Who were unfortunately robbed at gunpoint in collingwood this past sunday the 21st of june Um, so as far as we're aware uh, they were robbed in their collingwood home and their phones cameras and laptops and music equipment as well as cash were all stolen um and public housing housing residents were also assaulted by the gunman that morning as well at the collingwood estate um so it's yeah, it's pretty concerning, especially because um the local West Papuan um activist community, especially Par, who we've had on the show quite a few times, um mm. have, have been really um leaders in the grassroots activism space. Um,
0: mm. absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, they're down for, you know, First Nations folks, like black Americans, Latinx Pacificas, um, you know, always turning up like every rally, um, every action. So it's really important that if you're listening now, um, definitely head to that um, Facebook page, Fundraiser for West Papua Activists Robbed at Gunpoint in Collingwood.
3: Yeah, and we can pop a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, The goal was around 7,500, and I think they've reached the goal, but I would say still um, head over, donate, and check for any updates um, that have come through. and um there was an update from from Poor B yesterday. Um, sending some love and thanks to the donations. Um, he provided a bit of a video showing the effects and the damage of um the gunmen entering the property um and taking their belongings. So yeah, big solidarity with West Popin family in Melbourne right now. Um Poor mentioned they're traumatized and shocked, but They're taking some time to recover and rest now. Um, Still no clear motive for what happened, but um, I think they're still figuring that out. Um, So another recent occurrence that I think is really important to talk about is uh, Rise Refugee Survivors and ex detainees campaign to boycott Refugee Week. So that was um, from from Sunday, the 14th of June to Saturday, the 20th of June. So it's just passed. But. It's really important that we still have a conversation about what they were um, what they were aiming to achieve by talking about boycotting Refugee Week.
0: Mm. Yeah, so they've listed,
3: listed some
0: demands. So, or like what you can do instead, um, and that's firstly you can defund and divest from the refugee detention industry. Uh, you can get involved in the Australian government's white supremacist refugee policy for torturing and abusing refugees in detention centres. And so you can head to the Saints in Australia campaign, um, and that's listed on the Rise Refugee website. Um, Share Rise Ex Detainees 10 Demands, and you can find those also on the website. Um, How, and also they say like, you know, how many people have supported Ex Detainees Day on the 14th of September? A day that is not run by the UN or UNHCR, a privileged organisation headed mostly by non-refugees. And support self-determined organisations run by and for refugees, such as RISE, who don't take funding or selfies with government or UN officials um, and definitely just drop your money. So RISE, BSV number is 013128 and account number two two zero. 584-925.
3: Five eight four nine two five. Yeah, and, oh, really important as well to emphasize that RISE have been campaigning against Refugee Week for, I think, eight years now. So this is the eighth year mm. in a row. Um, and really what they're talking about is the cruelty of um, what they refer to, I believe, as the refugee industrial complex, but I'll have to double-check that. Um, but talking about um, how non-refugee-led organizations um, really make a lot of money and a lot of profit and gain a name for themselves by advocating quote unquote on behalf of the refugee and ex detainee community um, but really you know they're not doing the sort of work that rises which is the intent is to work themselves out of a job um, to make to make sure that refugees and ex detainees are supported and that these policies and procedures don't go ahead and there aren't sort of halfway measures to, you know, reduce the number of people detained, but just to not detain people in immigration detention and to not um, criminalise people for seeking asylum.
0: Mm. And they've been doing lots of food boxes for their community as well. So that money is just super important at the moment so that they can continue to keep supporting um, the refugee community. Yeah. And also some other news. So heading over to so-called Western Australia, um, the Upper House late on last Tuesday passed the Labor Government Bill, um, which advocates say will address the overrepresentation of Aboriginal people in the justice system. So this bill has been designed to end the controversial imprisonment of people for unpaid fines. Um, so we know that numerous do. Um, died in custody because of being locked up um, for paying unpaid fines. So, yeah, really hoping that this legislation will mean that um, no more Aboriginal people will be held in custody for unpaid fines in WA. Um, but, yeah, huge community effort, especially by the like, Noongar peoples and also for the citizens' um, side who raised over a million dollars to be getting people... Um, out of custody, and, yeah, big ups to the Free Her campaign. Um, Also, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, um, figures that were released in March this year, um, the Indigenous imprisonment rate at 4,118 people per 100,000 adults was higher than in WA than in any other state or territory. Um, And these reforms have been called for um, since 1991 in the royal commission so it's been a really long time coming
3: and hopefully this is a really significant um case in terms of the ending the criminalization of poverty um which will hopefully prevent a lot more people from from being locked up
0: mm. i think it's just like one step in the right direction.
3: So the last piece of news that we wanted to talk about today um, is that the suppression order um, has just been lifted on the death of an Aboriginal woman um, who passed away in Seaford, Victoria, on the 4th of February. She's now been named as Nolene Dalzell, and um, she's survived by her three children who, yeah, who unfortunately witnessed the the passing of their mother. in front of them a few weeks after her 49th birthday. Um, so allegedly she was stabbed by her partner, James Fairhall. Um, and, um, yeah, only now are we sort of getting a bit more information about her, about her life and, um, you know, ABC have done a profile yesterday, really giving us a fuller picture of Miss Dalzell's life and, um, her embeddedness in the community and, um, yeah, it's absolutely a tragedy. Um, we've seen increasing rates of domestic and family violence over COVID-19. Um, and, um, this really sort of highlights as well the importance of centering, um, Aboriginal women in Black Lives Matter campaigning to, um, and centering the importance of uplifting women who have, um, yeah, experienced, experienced violent deaths and, um, and their lives cut short way too soon.
0: 3CR Thursday Breakfast stands in solidarity with the uprising in Turtle Island. Black Lives Matter. To support First Nations families here, Please donate to David Dongo's family at the Justice for Junior Black Lives Matter GoFundMe page. Donate to Kumunjai Walker's family for their fight for justice. The GoFundMe page is Justice for Yundamu, Inquiry on Police Shooting. Please support the family of Joyce Clark and donate to In Memory of Joyce Clark, hashtag justice for Joyce. And support the Sisters Inside Free Her campaign to pay off fines for Aboriginal women in prison. No justice, no peace, no prisons,
7: no police. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. You're
0: listening to 3CR, 855 AM. Now let's head into another song. This one is For My Titters
1: by Baka
7: Black sister, where you going? How you doing? Where you been? I ain't seen you on the same for a couple Stay on your roll, you gotta do your thing But please don't sell your soul for a couple of jeans Embrace your black skin and your race within You're blessed by your blackness and your dark skin kid Race strong black kids, throw my drugs in the bin, And you'll be bound to make your old people look at you and grin huh. Stand strong like a matriarchy And I'm higher than the stars can reach You ain't gotta act different when it comes to me I believe in your sister, take a walk with me You're too deadly, sister, go and hang your head in the noose I know you're sick and tired of dealing with the drugs and abuse You're too strong, my sister, you know, the deep of a roots ah, Black woman in a white man's wealth It's tough, being sexualized is always black. That's enough, you work and get getting treated like dirt Show up and give your sisters what they truly deserve Respect, we're sick and tired of getting treated as less Saying that sex sells, but i got no products of hair The why you treat your woman as you lookin' looking real oppressed up, hello, you got your system to have it addressed. Huh? If she stands with you, then stand with her. Just standing down this healing is a bigger picture. Got nothing to do with your sexual preference. This is about our solidarity, that's hidden question. Huh? Well.
0: Was for my titters by Barker Now let's head to a conversation between Naser Mashni and Robert Martin from 3CR's Palestine Remembered show This week Naser and Rob talk about Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's plans to annex parts of occupied West Bank
8: We've got a couple of things we want to talk about today but first we want to talk about annexation Rob
9: Yeah one of these uh, lovely things that I think is due to start in within the next month and this is when yeah. Israel start to basically steal, legally steal, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, under their
8: laws legally, yeah, under legally, their laws, acc- absolutely. Well, according according to Benjamin Netanyahu and Donald Trump, it's legal.
9: Under international law, it clearly is not.
8: Under international law, it clearly is not. You're 100% right there. Yes, yeah, so Israel is going to annex parts of the West Bank that are supposed to be a future Palestinian state, Area C, which under Oslo Israel has complete control over. Some 400,000 Palestinians will suddenly be God knows what in the state of Israel. They won't be citizens. They won't be given citizenship, but they'll be resident illegal immigrants or God knows what the the, uh, Kafkaesque term that Israel will apply to those Palestinians that suddenly become part of the state of Israel.
9: So Area C has been an area over the last umpteen years when nobody could do anything except the Israeli army could use it for their bases. Is that correct?
8: Oh, Israeli army could use it for its bases. Yes, Correct but no um, the, one else
9: has been able to but now that it's been basically put aside for yeah. this moment
8: so so we should just pause there so Israel's used it for security and military bases but also has moved settlers into those areas yeah they've allowed the settlers to build they've connected those settlements illegal settlements to the Israeli power grid to the Israeli uh, water and utilities grids it's connected those illegal settlements back to Israel proper inside, you know, Palestine 48. It's um, given incentives, tax incentives, made the homes cheaper to allow for Israelis to settle in those illegal settlements. Mm-hmm. It's done everything plausible and available, t- taken extra water. The amount of water available to illegal settlers in the West Bank is something like five to six times what is available to a Palestinian. The World Health Organization says that the amount of water that each human being needs per day to be uh you know to live a, a normal life is 100 liters per person per day. The average mm. Israeli settler is close to 300. They've got green lawns and they've got pools. The average Palestinian is somewhere between 30 and 40 liters per day. So, mm. you know, 6 to 7 times more for those illegal settlers. So Area C was supposed to be part of the West Bank that was for future negotiations, what, well, you know, ultimately leading to Palestinian statehood was seen yeah. in, in the Oslo Accords now almost 30 years ago. But what we've known all along and, you know, Israel's proved is they're eating it up to keep it. Now. It's like a lot,
9: the old uh, analogy of the pizza, isn't
8: it? We buy a pizza, we're negotiating, negotiating over it whilst one person keeps eating it. Yeah. So we've got the situation now where Israel, you know, has Being given green light, Secretary of State Pompeo was in Israel in late May, and he said to Benjamin Netanyahu that Israel had the right and the obligation to choose how they want to apply sovereignty over the West Bank. So that's a direct quote. He said, Israel's got the right and the obligation to decide if and how it wants to apply sovereignty in the West Bank. So that's that's the green light to go ahead.
9: I got to say that when when I was over there I went through some parts of Area C and um, there were houses that weren't that old they were but they've got a caveat over the house to say that it could be removed or demolished at any stage pretty much like all Palestinian houses
8: You're saying the Palestinian houses had caveats on them or demolition orders
9: Yeah caveats they got a demolition order to basically say that at any time mm. uh, and this I was there 3 years ago so it will be coming up in the next month or so that they'll probably start losing their homes. So even though it was Area C, there has been some Palestinian homes on them, not many.
8: We should say the reality is that there's a 99% chance that a Palestinian application for a building permit will be denied in Area C. I think
9: that's the fact, Master. I think that's yeah. statistically correct.
8: <laughs> and that you know, it's 99.9% chance that if you're uh, an Israeli uh, that you'll be given your building approval. And the reality of Palestinians, whether they be in Area C or East Jerusalem, anywhere in Occupy Palestine, the permit process is so long, so slow, so expensive, and the chance of a yes so little that many Palestinians just built just because they have to. I mean, the kids and there's And the reality is Jeff Helper and his group, the International Coalition Against Housing Demolitions, they've documented tens of thousands of house demolitions since 1967 when Israel occupied East Jerusalem and the West Bank and there are thousands of Palestinian homes that have got demolition orders over them and in fact many Palestinians when confronted with the we're coming on Monday and we're going to knock over your house and you're going to get a bill for ten thousand dollars they're given the opportunity to knock it down themselves and thus save themselves a ten thousand dollar demolition fee and Palestinians actually are forced you know because of the financial implications actually choose to knock down their own homes
9: yeah one of uh again just you know last time i was there one of the saddest moments i ever saw was a house probably 12 palestinians living in it and mm. you know the great caterpillar bulldozers came through uh and knocked it to the ground where it was you know unrecognizable and the fact is that half of the palestinian stuff was in the house yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and a, a, there was a number of girls in school uniforms had obviously come home from school so They've left in the morning,
8: see, had breakfast in the morning in their home, come back and all their memories and love and...
9: and one of the most horrific things that, uh, that a person can see. You're just helpless, but you can't possibly understand what the family's going through. Just not possible for us to understand, to comprehend. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's another systematic racial discrimination that uh, Israel does on the Palestinians.
8: Well, it's just more apartheid. The interesting thing, and let's talk for a moment, aside from the illegality of the occupation, you know, it's illegal under international human rights law to move your civilian population into military conquered territory. It's against international law. Uh, It's against international law to then start building in there. It's against international law to continue to treat those people that you occupy under a two-tier legal system. It's illegal to take 12-year-old children in the middle of the night. Uh, and question them in a foreign language, in a foreign tongue, in a foreign prison, without access to legal representation or to their parents. Now, nothing, nothing new to us to understand that Israel is a rogue, illegal, uh, a, a state acting illegally. It's nothing new to us. state. Yeah, I mean, the challenge we've got now is we're Australians, Rob, right? you and I. We're born here is the silence of our government. I mean, the whole world is jumping up and down. And when I say the whole world, I mean, even the bad guys. In my mind, you know, they're all, some of them are good and some of them bad, but they're mostly all bad. You know, China is upset. China is lucky behind Tibet. You know, it's uh, almost went to war with India over some disputed territory. It's making moves in the South China Sea. But China's upset. China's not happy with the uh annexation. They've actually said, China is deeply concerned about Israel's plan. The Indonesian foreign minister, he called Pompeo directly and he said he urged the US to prevent Israel from carrying out its plan. Now, this is this is coming from everywhere. You know, Russia, and it's a bit rich for Russia to be um, uh, jumping up and down about annexation. I mean, they just annexed Crimea and is under UN sanctions. For the annexation of Yeah, Australia has applied uh, sanctions against Russia. For the annexation of Crimea. Although the Russians have used the same historical justifications as the Israelis about, you know, its ancient Russian land. Mikhail Bogdanov, who is the, um, Russia's deputy foreign minister, he said Israel's annexation is very dangerous. It would end the prospect of a two state solution and would most likely provoke a new round of violence in Palestine. I mean, you know, the United Kingdom. Tell me this
9: then. Tell me this because you're saying that. All of these world leaders and countries have actually, you know, stood up and said that it's undesirable or, you know, why aren't we hearing about it on any of our mainstream medias anywhere? Because it is not something that's jumping up. Here. You have to oh. search for Palestinian latest news.
8: Yeah. I mean, look, to, to be fair, the, the news is pretty filled with Black Lives Matter. I mean, you know, we have to yeah look at about time you know they, they killed another guy you know who um was asleep in his car you know poor black guy asleep in his car the cop pulls him out uh, somebody calls in and says there's a black guy asleep in that in the car park and the cops come and they speak to him and the video shows you know he's a, he's a good guy and speaking to them you know everything's all right he says look the cop says you're too drunk to drive he says okay can i lock my car up my sister lives just down the road i'll walk to her house and sleep it off and they've gone no no we're going to arrest you and then a kerfuffle breaks out and a struggle. The guy manages to get the taser off the copper. He's running away, uh, and the police officer shoots him three times. Kills him. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the reality is that somebody, again, when we talk about that, you know, we spoke about George Floyd about somebody asking, you know, what did he do beforehand? Somebody said to me, he said, maybe if he didn't fight, uh, or struggle, he'd be alive. And, and the argument is, Maybe he struggled and fought because he knows that he's... What's gonna happen? He's gonna die. You know, he has to get away from these cops. Now, they've got his driver's license. They've got his car. They know who he is. He's running away. I mean, how far is he gonna go? Yeah. The guy's running away from you with his back to you. Why would you shoot him? The only reason you shoot him is because there's no cost for you to shoot him and you can get away with it. Yeah. And we should mention his name, Rashad Brooks. You know, he's a father, he's a son, he's a brother. He's just asleep in his car and now he's dead. Right, let's finish up on the annexation. And the real concern, and particularly as Australians, is the whole world. German foreign ministers warned Netanyahu. The EU senior foreign affairs representative, Joseph Borrell, said in late May that the EU states would not recognise any changes to the 1967 borders unless they were agreed that the two-state solution, which Jerusalem is a capital for both states, is the only way forward. The UK said no. Russia, China, the whole Indonesia, everyone. Only Australia. Australia is silent, has not said anything. What sickens me is an Australian, uh, Malcolm Turnbull welcomed uh, Benjamin Ninja, who a couple of years ago, and that earlier this year, President Rivlin was welcomed by Scotty from advertising. But here we are, you know, an outlier. And, and the reality, where Australia sits as a middle power, it has the ear of the United States. It has the ear of Israel. They can say to them, you just can't do that shit. But, Australia
9: will never uh, do that, though, will they? We'll have to do what Big Brother tells them to do.
8: Well, uh, yeah, Deputy Dog. I mean, and, and, you know, Australia was right out there. You know, we've got to investigate where the, where the COVID came from. We've got to get China, the China disease, you know, and we look like stupid. We're looking stupid in in the world's eyes and how we've prosecuted that. Because the reality is that the WHA ended up calling for a full investigation, and China said they wanted it too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's crazy.
9: Times, we might
8: might finish this section off with just a um a quote from a UN body, the I- 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 OHCHR, which said, and I read this quote, which I-, I particularly liked, on the annexation. They said that what would be left of the West Bank would be a Palestinian Bantustan, islands of disconnected land completely surrounded by Israel with no territorial connection to the outside world. Israel has recently promised that it will maintain permanent security control between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. Thus, the morning after annexation would be the crystallisation of an already unjust reality. Two peoples living in the same space will by the same state, but with profoundly unequal rights. This is a vision of a 21st century apartheid. So very, very... Who wrote that? That statement, Rob, was from the United Nations Human Rights Office of the High Commissioner. So, uh, you know, a very, very big uh, group within the UN. So, Brilliantly written. Brilliantly so
9: written.
8: Really outstanding human beings. And, you know, finally calling it what it is and what we've been talking about for a long time, Rob, you and I. Two sets of people. Two sets of laws. One bit of land. Apartheid.
9: Just just tell me, last on the annexation, what do you think is going to happen over the next six months? Do they get in there and just bulldoze and start building? I mean, there's not a lot to bulldoze because it's, you know.
8: Yeah, you know, it's, pr- it's pretty clear. The- I don't think that he's going to stop. Netanyahu just wants to be in power, and to get in power he needed these fringe Israeli parties to agree to him being in power. Uh, he's done a deal with Benny Gantz that, you know, they're going to share prime ministerships for for a couple of years each, or well, 18 months wow. each. Um, he, this guy just wants to be in power. He's a complete megalomaniac. You know, he's under indictment. He's going to go to jail. Do, 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 do pa- you think he'll go? Oh, he has to go to jail, mate. And it's, 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 it's not, okay. um, it's not new territory. The Israeli prime ministers have gone to jail before. So, yeah, no, it's, it's, and, it's, it's, and it's previously an one that you know, it's
9: not a, it's not abnormal or yeah, it's you know, not abnormal. To uh,
8: you know, well, I mean, look, the reality is you can't act in such a criminal way as a state and not ex, and not think that that Act, those actions aren't going to contaminate the rest of your everything. Personal. I mean, yeah. one, one of the, one of the huge challenges that Israel has is with respect to their kids, conscripts in the occupation. You know, many of them suffer terrible PTSD. And I say terrible PTSD. Suicide because, rates too. Are high. Yeah. You know, it's not normal for a 19 year old to hold, corral tens, hundreds, thousands of Palestinians and have that level of control over human beings. Everyday movements, it's not normal. Now, no. some of them, you know, might enjoy it, some of them think it's God's work, but, you know, just because they celebrate God on Saturday doesn't mean that they're, they're bereft of the humanity that we all feel, and many of them, many of them suffer terribly. Now, yep. on a scale of suffering where the Palestinians in Gaza are on four hours of uh, electricity, per day, and the daily calorific intake of their food is only allowed in. No access to the outside world for 15 years. No water. No water. You know, the UN said the place would be unlivable by 2020. Here we are. You know, a population density that would see um, Australia have something like 15 billion people in it. You know, crazy, crazy, crazy numbers, and crazy inhumanity, and the depth of suffering is um, despicably low all the Palestinians in refugee camps in Lebanon or the Palestinians uh, in Syria that have been displaced because of the civil war and the destruction of Yarmouk, Palestinians in Jordan, etc., the Palestinians in East Jerusalem, and West Bank, all of them suffer ongoing stress disorder. There's no post-traumatic stress disorder, no PTSD. It's an ongoing stress disorder, whereas yeah. Israelis come out of that military conscription and then try and become normal, you know, how do you become normal after spending three years as a bloke or two years as a as a woman at a checkpoint? It, it's not right. It's not possible
9: but, to come uh, unscathed. Well, it possible.
8: cannot not affect you in some way. No. So um, anyway, look the 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 reality is that corruption, whether it's uh, at, in the state level and how that permeates its way through leadership, and then you know in its own citizenry. It's you know we've often said, and I know um some. Uh, has a poem about it, but in the Palestinians' liberation and freedom, so too will the Israelis be liberated and freed. That's good. You know, it's very, very powerful.
0: And just then we heard a conversation between Naser Mashni and Robert Martin from 3CR's Palestine Remembered show, who were talking about Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's plans to annex parts of occupied West Bank.
7: Good are you, mob? Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID 19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate and stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong. Stay safe. And, of course, keep listening to 3CR, community radio, to keep connected to the community. We'll get through this and hope to see you real soon. Bye.
0: All right, so now let's head into another song, Um, and this one is one of my favourite songs of Thelma Plum's debut album, Better in Black. This one is Woke Blokes.
10: I'm so sick of these woke blokes living their woke lives, fucking their woke girls, not like me. You're not like me. He's like, kill the boy down the road, who hurt the girl real bad. Unless he is my friend, or plays in my favorite band. He says, change the day, you should be grateful, you're only staring apart. Say there's only so much I can do, and your engine's gotta stop. But I don't want to let it go. If I do, no one will know. How it feels to be alone, and I just want it to stop. I'm so sick of these woke folks living their woke lives, fucking their woke girls, not like me. You're not like me. I'm so sick of these woke folks living their woke lives, fucking their woke girls, not like me. You're not like me. He does yogurt in the morning, and cold all afternoon. He wants to take me to Bali, get me drunk on the full moon. His friends will start to panic when he to make the news. Yeah, it's like a witch hunt. I really don't share those views But I don't want to let it go If I do, no one will know How it feels to be alone And I just want it to stop I'm so sick of these woke folks Living their woke lives Fucking their woke girls Not like me You're not like me I'm so sick of these woke folks living their woke lives, fucking their woke girls not like me. You're not like me. I'm so sick of these woke folks living their woke lives, fucking their woke girls not like me. You're not like me. I'm so sick of these woke folks living their woke
0: was Thelma Plum, Woke Blokes.
4: You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. Thank you so much for joining us on the show this morning.
6: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
4: First of all, I'd really love to just invite you to introduce yourself for listeners.
6: My name is Thant myint I'm Burmese. I'm speaking from Yangon in Myanmar, or what was Rangoon in Burma. I'm a historian, a writer. I also worked for the UN for about 15 years. And I've just finished a, a new book called The Hidden History of Burma, which was out a few months ago.
4: And for listeners that haven't had a chance to have a look at um, your most recent book, can you give us a bit of an overview of The Hidden History of Burma?
6: Burma is a country that became independent from Britain in 1948 and since then has had a fairly tragic history. It's been at civil war. It's a country that's been um, ruled by military dictatorship for many decades. It's one of the poorest countries in, in Southeast Asia. And over the past seven or eight years, it had what seemed to be a transition to more democratic government. It became more open as a society. It became more connected with the rest of the world. But we've also seen Lots of violence, intercommunal violence, interracial violence. 700,000 refugees fleeing to Bangladesh in 2017. And I've been in Burma, working here and doing different things for the past 10 years. And the book is, in a way, my attempt to to make sense of all this. The story of of Burma, first as a country led by a military dictatorship, uh, with an opposition headed by Aung San Suu Kyi, who is a Nobel laureate. This seeming um, transition to more democratic government and then this more recent tragedy, especially involving these Rohingya people and refugees. So it's an attempt to make sense of that and and to really connect it back to a much longer legacy around race, identity, inequality and colonialism as well. For listeners who might be unsure around terminology,
4: can you explain your decision in terms of using Burma rather than Myanmar?
6: I think Burma is a much nicer... Word and, and name in English, so that's, there's a personal preference. It's Myanmar is is actually the same word as Burma. It sounds different in English, but the wo- you know the Burmese word for Burma has or for Burmese has always been Myanmar, and that's how it's it's written and that's how it's it's pronounced. And so there was never any change of name in Burmese. Uh, Burma is the word that was used by Europeans going back hundreds of years before the colonial period as well. I guess one reason that some people have a preference for Burma is that the change of name really reflects a kind of a a nativist sentiment. It's like Germans saying, you know, in the 1930s to people speaking English that they had to refer to their country as Deutschland rather than Germany. And that's kind of the sentiment behind why military rulers back in the late 1980s insisted that people call the country by, um, by the name in Burmese Myanmar rather than Burma.
4: The subtitle of your book, um, you know, The Hidden History of Burma, Race, Capitalism and the Crisis of Democracy in the 21st Century, I was wondering if we could maybe talk briefly about those different key issues that you're discussing in your book. First of all, race, you write a lot around the way in which the modern state as a racial hierarchy has its origins in British colonialism. Can you unpack that a little bit more for us?
6: Or I mean, I mean, on the one hand, you know, Burma is a place that has tremendous diversity in terms of language and culture. There's literally dozens, if not hundreds, of mutually unintelligible languages and dialects spoken in the country. You go to some parts of the country which are mountainous and the people at the at the bottom of the mountain speak an entirely, you know, speak a language that's from an entirely different language family than people you know, in the middle of the highlands and then people at the top of the mountain. So it's incredibly diverse in that way. And people before the British came along obviously had their own sense of identity and and, and difference from each other as well as from other people as well. But under the British, um, government became a racial hierarchy. You had people of uh, Europeans, basically mainly English people, people of uh, European descent at the very top. You had immigrants who had come mainly from India and, and, and from China, um, taking over new sort of um, parts of the economy, um, forming a, a privileged business class as well. Um, and then you had the ordinary Burmese people at the very bottom of this hierarchy. And so for the first time in Burmese history, uh, the country was ruled as a racial hierarchy, where the race you were from determined to a large extent your position in society. Could you think a bit more about how, you know, coming from that colonial
4: legacy, How is race and identity being sort of put to work within a a nationalist project?
6: Well, I mean, I guess the easiest way or not the easiest way, but a, a way to think about the whole kind of Burma story is this, that, you know, it was a racial hierarchy. It was it was obviously under it was under colonial British colonial rule. That's true of many different countries. What's unique about Burma to some extent was the extent to which there was immigration from somewhere else. And that immigration came from from India. And so Burma was a country of about 10, 12 million people back then in the early 20th century. Millions of people from India came. And so there had been no problems before between people from Burma and from India. But under British rule, with these millions of immigrants coming in, a lot of tension developed that during the Depression in the 1930s spilled over into communal violence under colonial occupation. In the 1950s and 60s, independent Burmese governments wanted to move to the left in terms of jettisoning uh, British era kind of, the British era kind of economic system, and installing instead a kind of socialist system. But they also expelled, uh, or more or less compelled to leave, hundreds of thousands of of ethnic Indians who were then living in the country. Fast forward to the 1980s, 90s, and more recent times, that socialist experiment, for different reasons, was seen to have failed. And all that was left was that kind of ethno-nationalist sentiment that's for a hundred years had been directed against Indian immigrants. And even though most of the Indian immigrants were gone now, that kind of ethno-nationalist sentiment of Burma and the Burmese as being an indigenous people that were under threat of being overwhelmed by Indians or Chinese or other outsiders at any time became quite a big part of how people thought about themselves and their country. And maybe that was okay up to a point, but because it was a country that had its own other minority peoples, Um, this whole project of then how do you build a nation which includes some people and then excludes other people uh, became a huge challenge and a challenge which um, successive governments have have completely failed at at addressing over these decades
4: And so moving on why do you write that, that capitalism is a key overlooked or missing element in the story
6: of Burma? Well, it is because no one talks about it. I mean, it's it's, you know, people if, to the extent that anyone in, in Australia or elsewhere knows about Burma, it's, it's either through the lens of politics in the sense of, you know, dictators versus versus Democrats or identity in the sense of minority groups and and peoples like the Rohingya who've been oppressed and then now expelled violently. And then people don't think about capitalism or or the economic system, which has been incredibly exploitative and incredibly violent in many ways towards millions and millions of, of ordinary people in the country. It was it was a capitalist system under colonial rule. Then, as I mentioned, there was this socialist experiment from the 50s through the 80s that was seen to have failed. And then we've had this kind of transition back to a kind of capitalism since the late 1980s, about the same time that Eastern Europe, Soviet Union, these countries also transitioned to a kind of free market system. And that free market system um, has displaced millions of people, has cut down millions of acres of forests, has led to tremendous environmental degradation, has led to a society that used to be fairly equal becoming incredibly unequal, um, and whatever else, and whatever you think about, you know, whether the future should be to the to the left or to the right or capitalist or something else, it's a huge part of of life and what's what and the situation, the dynamics in this country today. And I think it's been overlooked um, when people think about Burma from the outside.
4: So you write that that Burma is a sort of almost morality tale that came crashing down, um, in the sense of how the you know Western Country sort of upheld, upheld Burma as this, this, this fable or narrative of progress. Could you talk a bit about the role of the West in constructing and maintaining those narratives of, of capitalist progress and this sort of inevitable move towards democracy?
6: Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, I mean, the country is, is infinitely more free than it was 10 years ago. I mean, we have a new constitution. It's not a democratic constitution, but it's at least a halfway house between military rule and and a fully-fledged democracy. Um There's a lot more freedom of media and association than there was before. I mean, just the fact that I can do this interview from here, it's something that I wouldn't have been able to do, you know, nine, ten years ago. So it is more free. It is, to some extent, more democratic. Aung San Suu Kyi, who was opposition leader under house arrest for many years, uh, was not only freed and then became an MP, but now is the de facto head of of government and very much leading the show, for instance, during this this pandemic and so that in that way there's been huge progress um there's been a lot of fighting um, between uh, the government and, and ethnic minority uh armies in the past but that's to some extent died down in the in the very recent past that's still continuing in some parts of the country um but it's these bigger issues that are missing i mean or that are still not being addressed i mean both this this nation building issue of, of how do you construct a a a society, a fair society from dozens of different um, ethnic minority uh, communities? How do you build a new kind of identity that is not a return to this kind of ethno-nationalist sentiment of the past? And then how do you build a a new economy um, from this kind of extremely exploitative capitalist economy that we have right now, uh, that also addresses issues like climate change. And, and Burma is going to be one of the countries in the world most uh, negatively affected by climate change anywhere in the world. Um, and so they're big questions, and these are the questions that many countries in the world are asking, but they're particularly acute in Burma. And I think the reason Burma is so interesting is it's a microcosm of almost all of the world's problems. And if we start to find a way out of some of these problems, perhaps Burma can be a testing ground for some solutions as well.
4: And you mentioned the COVID-19 pandemic before. Could you give us a bit of an update about um, how things are
6: going in Burma? On the one hand, it's, you know, the, the, the number of confirmed cases is is very small. Only a few people have died. We don't know if that's the real truth, because only a few thousand people have been tested so far. So it's possible it's, it's much more widespread than people think. But there's not a huge outbreak anywhere. The, the hospitals are not full or anything like that so it's it's not as if a huge amount has been hidden but it's probably worse than than the official statistics say so but on the one hand it's you know it's not bad uh and the government is taking it seriously there are quarantine rules in place uh there's a semi-lockdown in place uh no international commercial uh air travel is is allowed um so that's okay in terms of the handling in the situation um but what's really bad is has been the economic impact and it's the impact from both The changes in the world economy, trade with China, trade with Thailand, remittances from millions of Burmese migrant workers abroad have have collapsed. Um, The garment industry is at at risk of collapsing because they're dependent on exports to Europe. So millions of very poor people who really have no savings and and nowhere to turn. We have no social security net, safety net, um, are at risk of losing everything. And so the economic picture is very dire. And and that's with no outbreak. And so if we have a health Emergency on top of that. Um, I think we should all be focused a little bit on Burma as, as one of these developing countries we all think about when we think about how um, you know the worst of this pandemic may still be may still be ahead of us.
4: I just want to ask one further question about about the Rohingya crisis. And you know, we've spoken quite a bit on Thursday Breakfast around sort of the the, the unfurling crisis and, and genocide of Rohingya people. Would you speak a bit more about that and what can be done in terms of Supporting and amplifying the rights of Rohingya people, and it's
6: very um, hard to be optimistic. I mean, you have the situation of the seven, eight hundred thousand people who are refugees in Bangladesh, and and the protection needs there. And we just have to remember that you know nearly half of those people are are children whose whose loss of education, you know, every year that goes by for a kid without education is is a tragedy. We have. 100,000 uh, plus in uh, in IDP camps internally displaced camps in in Rakhine and you know the, the the hope of any kind of repatriation that is safe and voluntary and dignified i think is just really really um um unlikely right now or the, the the hope is 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 very slim right now uh with this pandemic i mean the intention of government to 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 try to solve this issue is is now very far away um, but even more than that, it's that in that same part of the country, in Rakhine state, where the Rohingya had come from, uh, you know, before they became refugees in Bangladesh, this is where there's now incredibly intense fighting between the government and a whole new insurgency, the Arakan army, which represents or claims to represent the other minority there, the Arakanese, or Rakhine-speaking Buddhist minority, who are up in arms against the government as well, and where another 100,000 people have been displaced over the past uh, year. And that is also occupying, not just occupying a lot of attention in the government, but is seen as a huge emergency right now. And that's in exactly the same part of the country. And in general, I just don't see, the, you know, if the hope is that people will be allowed to come back or people, regardless of race or religion or integrate into society, I just don't see the hope that that will happen in that one small part of the country unless you see systemic and basic change everywhere in the country so you know it's a long slog ahead and it touches on all the issues that we've discussed and and i guess my main point is just that i just don't see uh, a, a way forward for rohingya people that doesn't include change in the country as a whole
4: what are your hopes for the future why do you write that you know what is needed most of all for burma is a new project of the imagination
6: Because Burma is in so many ways this microcosm of of all the world's problems and whether it's, you know, the rise of China next door, whether it's dealing with new technology, whether it's issues around race and and migration, uh, whether issues around identity, um, the future of capitalism, uh, the need to, to combat climate change, all of these things is in Burma. And Burma also is a place where, you know, it has tremendous potential. It's rich in natural resources. It doesn't have um, some of the problems that some other countries have in terms of very deep-seated um, uh, structural reasons for, 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 for poverty. And, and so what it does need is, is fresh thinking. And I think the way forward for Burma is to connect as much as possible to creative, out-of-the-box thinking in the rest of the world as possible. And again, I think Burma can be a testing ground for some of the solutions that we all hope to, to find um, for, for these shared problems. And to wrap up, um,
4: how can listeners find out more about your work and grab a copy of your book?
6: I think my book is is should be available online in I mean through online booksellers in in Australia. It's um you can go to my website which is thamintu t h a n t m y i n t u dot com which has information about all my books as well as articles and and broadcast work as well. Amazing! Thank you so much for joining us on Thursday Breakfast. Thank you. Bye bye.
2: 3CR is your station in solidarity and struggle. We've been with you since 1976 and we are here to stay.
6: Throughout June, we're running a station appeal.
2: We need the financial support of our listeners to stay independent, community-owned and radical.
6: Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au
7: See that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people, and the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began two hundred and fifty years ago, this year. Now we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda, and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been two hundred and fifty years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally. We might be oppressed, but we understand what freedom is, and we fight for it every day, and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid-this year.
11: 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity.
0: To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. I hope you're enjoying Thursday Morning Breakfast so far. Now we're going to head into a new track by Alice Skye. This one is Grand Ideas. from Alice Sky grand ideas you're listening to 3cr Thursday morning breakfast 855 5 am all right so now we're going to play another new track for you this one is I feel it by the Marindas. <laughs> To 3CR 855 AM And the song that we just played for you then Was I Feel It by the Marindas.
2: 3CR is your station in solidarity and struggle We've been with you since 1976 And we are here to stay
6: Throughout June we're running a station appeal
2: We need the financial support of our listeners To stay independent, community owned and
6: radical Jump online and give what you can Go to 3 CR.
7: Six
5: been in Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria.
7: It's good to be here because uh, I was Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much.
9: It brings us all together.
8: Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just, just
11: want to say thank you towards. to all what's of you for giving the us the opportunity to, morning. Morning. to speak on air. The bigger
8: the, air. the reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold.
5: And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars.
1: But also
8: while I'm here I'd like to say thank you for all for coming um, Helping, giving us a chance to do this It's really good, you know, it's been going for a while now Hopefully it goes, it keeps going You know, like it's it's good that we can do this And um, get our voice out there as prisoners We can't blame everything on the
6: external So let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor Because real power comes from here And it comes from family
5: if you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419
4: 8377. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, and next up we're going to hear from Alison Koenigke on systemic racial bias in voice recognition software. So Alison is over in the States, and I'm here. When I reached out to Ellison, she let me know that she was incredibly busy at the moment, so she probably didn't have time to do an interview, but that she'd be happy to respond to my questions by voice memo. So the interview that you're about to hear might sound a little stilted because I sent her the questions, she sent me voice memos back, and then I recorded the questions. But I hope you'll stay tuned for this conversation because I feel like it's really important now more than ever. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Around the world, we're seeing this rapid uptake of technologies and online forms of communication. And it's so important that we're aware of the systemic bias that's built into those technological systems and what we can do to challenge that. So stay tuned. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. And this is Alison Koenigke on her research regarding systemic racial bias in voice recognition software.
12: Hi, I'm Alison Koenigke and I'm a PhD candidate studying Computational and Mathematical Engineering at Stanford University.
4: Okay, so first things first, what actually are automated speech recognition systems and how is this technology currently being employed around the world?
12: Automated speech recognition systems use machine learning algorithms to convert spoken language to text. So you've probably heard of speech-to-text systems and virtual assistants like Alexa or Siri, which you can use from your phone or other devices in your home. But the impact of speech recognition systems goes far beyond commercial products. Uh, For example, doctors use speech-to-text software to create medical records about their patients. Online educators rely on automated closed captioning of their videos to reach hard-of-hearing audiences and people with physical impairments depend on this assistive technology to control their computers. But critically, not everyone can take advantage of these powerful new tools.
4: You led a recent research study that revealed significant racial bias in the performance of five popular speech recognition systems. Could you please break down for us what your research found?
12: We gathered thousands of audio snippets of American speakers who self-identified racially as either black or white, and then ran these audio files through five leading speech recognition systems. We found that all of the service providers, that is Amazon, Apple, Google, IBM, and Microsoft, all showed significant racial disparities. For every 100 words, these systems made about 19 errors for white speakers compared to 35 errors for black speakers, which is roughly twice as many errors for black speakers than for whites. Now the systems performed particularly poorly for black men, and for those who spoke with linguistic features that are characteristic of African-American vernacular English.
4: So in your view, where do these racial biases in voice recognition systems come from?
12: Modern speech recognition systems are generally composed of two separate technical components, a language model and an acoustic model. Now, the language model deals with what you say, so things like words and grammar. Meanwhile, the acoustic model deals with how you say it, so things like pronunciation, rhythm, pitch, syllable accenting, vowel duration, that sort of thing. From our experiments, we found that the race gap appears due to the acoustic model and not the language model. We believe that we can start closing the race gap by using more diverse data in training the acoustic model. That is, if your model only listens to examples of white speakers' pronunciation, rhythm, pitch, and so on, it's not gonna generalize well to other demographics of speakers with perhaps different acoustic patterns. So we encourage the makers of speech recognition systems to invest in better collection of data on African-American vernacular English speech and other non-standard varieties of English, whose speakers may be similarly burdened by poor speech recognition performance, including those with regional and also non-native English accents.
4: On 3CR Thursday Breakfast, we focus a lot on racist and racialized policing. Could you speak a bit about how facial and voice recognition technology is increasingly being used in law enforcement?
12: Our study was very much inspired by prior work in the computer vision space. Specifically, researchers Joy Bualamwini and Timnit Gabrup found that big tech companies, despite having overall high accuracy and facial recognition, performed very poorly on darker female faces, as opposed to their white male counterparts. We see our study as the audio counterpart in racial disparity studies. For a concrete example, court reporters document millions of transcripts a year in legal settings there exist services for legal-specific audio transcription. But one can imagine that if these transcriptions are on average worse for black defendants than for white defendants, then there could potentially be skewed trial outcomes.
4: Listeners who don't have Alexa or Siri in their homes or on their phones might be tempted to dismiss all of this as not that relevant to them. Why do the dangers of unchecked and biased artificial intelligence systems implicate and impact all of us? no matter what technology we choose to use.
12: It's easy to trivialize this issue by saying things like, this just means you can't ask Google to tell you a recipe. But the world is quickly adopting these speech-to-text systems across industries. For example, doctors are already using speech recognition systems, especially trained on medical vocabulary that they're using in hospitals. But what if, despite being a competent doctor, your speech is not recognized and so your patient's records end up being incorrect? It's easy to dismiss these things as irrelevant if you don't need to use the systems all the time. But for example, let's talk about someone who's disabled and needs to use speech to text because they're unable to type. This is going to be their main mode of communication in the 21st century.
4: So the CEOs of big tech companies love to talk about so-called ethical artificial intelligence. In your view, in a deeply unjust world, can artificial intelligence ever be truly equitable?
12: AI is only as equitable as the people who design the systems. In order to have ethical artificial intelligence, we have to have conversations about what that means when we build the products and not after products exacerbate inequality.
4: Okay, so what needs to change? How can we fight back against the racism that's built into voice and facial recognition systems?
12: To ensure that voice technology is broadly inclusive, It's critical for academic researchers and industry professionals to create and use more diverse data sets when developing speech recognition tools. Of course, it's often difficult to obtain training data at the large scale that's necessary for machine learning models. Even if all ethical concerns are addressed for data collection broadly, there still remains the problem of collecting data using consumer products. So one can imagine a positive feedback loop from data collection based on product usage. So if only white speakers are understood by their phone's voice assistant, the only data collected will be that of white speakers, which then feeds into the company's model used to develop the voice assistant. Without separately providing data for black speakers, it would be unlikely for the speech recognition acoustic models to improve for black speakers who cannot use the company's voice products. This is all to say, those in the speech recognition community need to be more cognizant of diversity from the beginning of the pipeline is, when they collect the data that's used to inform their machine learning models. If these data are reflective of a more diverse population, the ensuing speech-to-text transcriptions will likely allow for a more accurate transcription across diverse varieties of English. Also, we call on developers of speech recognition tools in industry and academia to regularly assess and publicly report their progress along this dimension.
4: Can you tell us about how the poetic video piece, called Voicing Erasure, came about and what message it seeks to get across?
12: Voicing Erasure is a spoken word poem spearheaded by the Algorithmic Justice League. This project came about when the New York Times wrote a piece about our research on speech recognition systems. Despite being interviewed as the lead author, I was neither mentioned nor quoted in the piece. And in fact, despite nearly half of the paper authors being women, and many of the leading researchers in the field being women, none of them were quoted in the piece either. We found this to be especially ironic in a written piece about bias, given that seven men were quoted and no women were quoted. But we found that this is a place where we could foster discussion, draw attention to the frequency with which this happens, and hopefully inspire journalists to be more aware of their own biases when reporting, especially in male-dominant fields like AI, where it's so easy for women to not be given credit for their work.
4: Alison, to wrap up, what can listeners do if they have been impacted by biased or harmful artificial intelligence technology? And how can listeners find out more about your work?
12: If you feel like you're not being served by AI-based products, absolutely bring that to the public eye. These products are being made for you, and these companies need to get it right and reach all consumers. In the meantime, you can find out more about our research at fairspeech.stanford.edu.
4: This is 3CR Thursday Breakfast, and you've been hearing from Alison Koenigke on the systemic racial bias embedded into voice recognition software and artificial intelligence more broadly. To find out more, as you just mentioned, you can go to fairspeech.stanford.edu. Now we're going to listen to Voicing Erasure, a poetic video piece inspired by Ellison's research on voice recognition bias. The poem you're about to hear, written by Joy Wallamwini, is recited by champions of women's empowerment and leading scholars on race, gender and technology. To find out more or watch the full video, you can go to the website of the Algorithmic Justice League at www.ajlunited.org. Stay tuned, you're on 3 Thursday Breakfast, and up next is Voicing Erasure.
11: Whose voice do you hear when you think of intelligence, innovation, and ideas that shape our worlds?
1: Whose voices are dismissed, diminished, and erased when we hear the stories of glories past and present, discoveries far and near?
9: Whose voices rose up to demand to be counted and heard?
1: to be respected and remembered for revealing contradictions in tales of mythical equality, supposed superiority, and fleeting fairness. Whose voices fought so that those at the margins and intersections could be free to develop their minds, advance our humanity, and uncover our buried abilities.
12: And yet, despite the strides, the battles continue
9: far too often we still face erasure.
11: Erasure from both humans and machines.
1: Machines that don't hear the way my sisters, brothers, and siblings speak.
2: Machines
1: that erase my mother's medical needs, my partner's job opportunities.
5: And machines that erase you and me. Machines of flesh and blood networked together that cancel our contributions and our full expression as individuals.
12: Machines of silicon and steel that reflect the biases of their makers and societies. Machines
1: that listen for commands, using names and voices that reinforce the role of women as subservient recipients of demands.
11: Alexa, Siri, Cortana,
1: are
12: you listening?
9: Yes. Yes. Do as I say, answer my questions in a pleasing way.
12: Is it okay, Google and others, to capture data shared unaware? snatching snippets of intimate whispers? No. We
1: need to remember we have a voice and a choice.
12: We do not have to accept conditions that
1: continue traditions of silencing.
9: We must reject terms that reduce humans to data that fuels surveillance.
1: We cannot let the promises of AI overshadow real and present harms. We will not be dismissed. We will not be erased. Instead, we will beat the drum of solidarity, marching towards a future where technology serves all
11: of us, not just the privileged few. Let my let let your your voice, voice, your voice, be heard.
4: This is 3CR Thursday Breakfast, and that piece you just heard then was called Voicing Erasure, a poetic video piece written by Joy Bolenwini, founder of the Algorithmic Justice League. Voicing Erasure is voiced. By Joy Boland-Winnie, Ruha Benjamin, Sasha Constanza Kimberly Crenshaw, Alison Kanicki, Safia Noble, and Megan Smith. To find out more and to watch the video, you can go to www.ajlunited.org voicing erasia This is 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 855 AM. Stay tuned for more Radical Radio.
0: Okay, now we're going to go into another track by local artist Sophie Grothy. This is her new one, Evol.
11: They say you're danger I say that I am too I say that I am too I might be better than you you say you're nice guy. You say you're the one for me. You say I'm the one for you. You always got me confused. If I give you my heart, would you break it up now or would you protect it, baby? If I give you my heart, would you break it up now or would you protect it, baby? He a bad boy. He know that Harry lost. But he think is it? I know be obvious. Cause he thinks that he a slight guy. I'ma turn your whole mood to a shite guy. You, mate, what you said, but I want action instead, I was always two step ahead, man I was always getting prepared, cause I don't think you're ready for me, you said you gonna do whatever it takes, so if I give you my heart would you break it up now or would you protect it baby, if I gave you my heart would you break it up now or would you protect it It's like I, I'ma turn your whole mood to so
1: a shite like guy
0: Listening to 3CR 855 AM, and we just played for you a vol by Sophie Groffy.
4: You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast 855 AM on your dial. So first up this morning, you heard from Priya and Carly about some of the important local news stories from the week. Then you heard from Palestine Remembered, incredible show on 3CR. That was a conversation between Nasser Mashni and Robert Martin talking about the Israeli Prime Minister's plans to illegally annex parts of occupied West Bank and the lack of dissent from international leaders around that annexation of Palestinian land. You heard an interview I did with Dant Min about his recent book, The Hidden History of Burma, and you also heard from Alison Koenigke sharing her learnings from her research into systemic racial bias built into voice recognition software. So that's all we've got time for this morning on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Stay tuned for Lost in Science. We'll be back next week, and I hope everyone has a beautiful Thursday.
3: Well, that's all we have time for today on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55 a.m. Thanks so much, Carly.
0: Thank you, Priya. Good yarn at the beginning there. Um, yeah.
3: Thanks for listening, everyone. And now to Lost in Science.
0: Through CR
2: Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find NIBS in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.